And welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. Things are actually happening. NBA teams and players decided the offseason have not. Are they, though? Are things happening? Because it feels I mean, like a whole lot of talk about things happening, and then... I mean, DeAndre Ayton signed a $133 million offer sheet and was then matched by Phoenix, which has some ripple effects. I mean, that's a thing. I guess I should have said a thing happened rather than things are happening. But even that is like, okay, yes, it was a thing that happened and a thing that had been potentially holding up subsequent moves that might yet happen. But that thing happening just resulted in the guy winding up in the same place that he was already in. And it, it seemed for a while like Phoenix might include him in a sign and trade. Maybe he'd be involved in a Kevin Durant deal. And we can talk about how Phoenix is probably now out of the KD sweepstakes. But as soon as that offer sheet was tabled, it became very clear that he was going to wind up back in Phoenix, right? There was just no way. I don't care how cheap Robert Sarver is. There was just no way that Phoenix was going to let him go for nothing. You know, I don't doubt that a DeAndre Ayton trade may yet be in the cards, you know, six months down the road when he becomes eligible to be traded. But I, I didn't I don't think there was ever any chance that Indiana was actually going to wind up with him unless I suppose they had managed to work out a sign and trade deal with the Suns, which just for whatever reason, the Suns didn't seem interested in that. But that's it's just weird because there are things that are seeming to percolate and maybe happening, but Ultimately, it still feels like a whole lot of nothing so far. Well, part of the Suns not being interested would seem to be that they weren't interested in Miles Turner filling in for DeAndre Ayton with one year on his contract, an expiring contract, and also maybe some health concerns still there as well. I mean, uh, Miles Turner hasn't exactly been able to stay healthy. But in terms of the Ayton thing, I agree that I think he will find his way back on the trade block eventually, and he is eligible to be traded in mid-January, but the nature of him being an offer sheet guy means that he also has veto power over any trades for a full calendar year. So that's not to say he won't be traded or can't be, but he could veto any trade that goes out. If, you know, obviously the obvious one that's going to come up is, well, they can just re-examine a KD trade in January when Ayton's trade eligible and that may be the case but we don't know does what if DeAndre Ayton decides a he doesn't want to go to Brooklyn or b he's kind of in the mood to stick it to the Suns like I I don't know there it's it's very possible that he kind of throws a wrench in this thing even then if the Suns again emerge if KD does start the season in Brooklyn and the Suns again emerge as his preferred landing spot and Ayton is the centerpiece of a outgoing trade package but deandre Ayton with veto powers is no i don't want to be part of this like we could just be right back in another standstill it is funny to think about him sticking it to the suns by 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 refusing to let them trade him i mean i I don't think you i don't think you can veto a trade for spite (laughs) well uh, yeah no you can you can (laughs) um Anyway, so yeah, I think there's there's a lot of interesting dimensions to the Aiden situation, and I guess where we can start is, how do you feel like the Suns came out of this whole thing? Because this stretches back, to, <laughs> this stretches back to last offseason where they refused to meet his asking price of a full max, and even in matching this offer sheet, 
it's still a, a lesser contract than what they would have given him if they'd given him the the rookie extension that he was eligible for last offseason or the full max that they could have offered him as an RFA this offseason, right? He gets only four years, smaller annual raises. Like they, the, the max that Phoenix could have offered him would have been, I, I don't know, what, substan- substantially more. I don't have the number in front of me now, but like they could have offered him an extra year and more money. So I guess in that sense, they can say, well, we came out of this as winners because we get to keep Aiton. Sorry, at just, a, at, uh, just to throw it out there. Yeah, the, yeah, it could have been five years and about $179.3 million. Which is, yeah, I mean, that's a, a not insignificant yeah, gap. An extra $40 million. And what I would say from Phoenix's perspective, and we've talked about this before in, in terms of the money doesn't actually matter for them in terms of their cap sheet. It's really just a question of, the luxury tax and, and Robert Sarver's checkbook, which I don't think anyone gives a shit about. So <laughs> be, because essentially they can't open the cap space anyway, it, it like saving money on DeAndre Aiden's contract is really just saving money against the luxury tax. And I guess you could say if they could stay under the tax, they might have access to the full MLE rather than the taxpayer MLE. But at the end of the day, I don't think if you're considering DeAndre Aiden like a core player like a, a an important part of your future i don't think that's the kind of thing you want to be splitting hairs over you know the difference between the tax mle and the full mle it just doesn't from that perspective the money didn't matter and they shouldn't have been haggling about this but if the idea for phoenix was well we're going to trade this guy anyway he is now probably on a more tradable contract than he would have been if they'd given him that full five-year boat i still think it's just not a great look to have done this whole song and dance to have had things blow up the way that they did at the end of their season, you know, for a number of reasons, but obviously Aiton kind of came front and center and the, someone who was a really crucial component of their finals run a couple of years ago, also a huge component of them winning 64 games this past season. I don't know, man. I don't, I, I think they have done him a little bit dirty here. Just, even even though they're matching what is the largest offer sheet in NBA history, even though I think that is very much fair market value for the type of player DeAndre Ayton is, like, what was the purpose of all this? You know, maybe it is just that. Maybe it is just like to have him on a more tradable contract at the end of the day. But now, now you got to play out the first half of the right. season with him on the roster. And it just feels like playing with fire unnecessarily. Yeah, the reason I think it's a loss and why they took an L here is because, okay, yes, they saved some money, as you mentioned, uh, given that it's not most likely not really going to make a difference in terms of their cap flexibility. No one should give a shit about how much money Robert Sarver is saving. And even if you want to look at it as like, well, the contract overall is more tradable, and in that case, they actually become more flexible. I'm looking at it the other way around, where Phoenix is one of the few teams very much like all in in terms of being in a win now window, right? So I'm not saying their flexibility a couple of years down the road doesn't matter. It always matters. Teams are always, you know, looking towards the future and thinking about the big picture. I get that. But Phoenix is one of the few teams who I think should be thinking a lot less about the big picture and thinking about how do we maximize our chance to win a championship right now, like in the immediate, while Chris Paul is still here and, you know, still the Chris Paul we hope he can be. And even that, you never know. And in that case the reason i think this is an l is because their short-term flexibility has been impacted 
by the fact that this whole situation was resolved via matching an offer sheet because now you can't trade DeAndre until January. And now he's got veto power for a full calendar year. So yeah, you can look at it as like, well, the contract as a whole is more tradable, but when? A year from now? What mm. do the Suns look like a year from now? Do, are they still, you know, an absolute no-brainer contender? Right? Like, I don't know. What are they going to look like in January when he's trade eligible? If they then find a deal that could make them better, does DeAndre Ayton okay that trade? Like, there are now way too many variables for me. And again, maybe you could look at it and say, well, you know, if they had just given in and given him the contract he wanted, they wouldn't have been in tr to trade him anyway. I don't know if that's true, but I do know that in the immediate present, in the current day, they are now less flexible than they would have been had they done that. They probably pissed an agent or two off with like, th there are other ripple effects that can come of this. And I, I think for a team that is absolutely trying to win the 2023 NBA championship, I think they've taken an L here. I think you could also say it hamstrings their negotiating position a little yeah. bit. If you're thinking about them putting him back on the trade block come December 15th, other teams knowing that the situation is, let's say, imperfect, that there might be some friction between DeAndre Ayton, the front office, the coaching staff, the other players on the team, like knowing that, I just think that makes it a little bit more difficult to, for Phoenix to exert any leverage in trade talks because other teams are going to be well aware of the fact that they kind of need to get off of him, you know? So I, it, it's just, you don't want to be in a situation where you go into a season with, with this level of fracture hanging over your franchise, especially for a team like Phoenix that has this very short window you know arguably still their most important player is 37 years old and was last seen how would you describe into what a he pumpkin was after turning 37 years old <laughs> okay. in the playoffs yeah. like i was trying to think of a way to describe how chris ball was last dance, seen on an nba court three so. in the peace dance for pumpkin <laughs> yeah so i don't know do you I, do you want to talk about this from indiana's perspective is there much to say there like i think I mean, okay, here's what I'll say. I'll say I don't I don't imagine that they did this with the anything more than like a 0.5% hope that he, they were actually going to land him. Like they had if you and I are here sitting here talking about the fact that there was no way even cheap Robert Sarver wasn't matching this. The Pacers who are running an NBA team had to know that as well. So I don't know. Maybe, you know, we talk about the ripple effects of like pissing off agents of, Hey, maybe the Pacers are looking good because of this. Cause they're like them doing this got Deandre in situation resolved and got him mm -hmm. paid. Um, I, the, the free agents are flocking to Indiana yeah. from here <laughs> on out, you lining, know? Up, <laughs> lining up to go to Indianapolis. Listen, you got Deandre Ayton paid. I'm coming. I will. I will say like, I was talking about it. I think I mentioned on the podcast. I know I wrote about it. Those first few days of free agency, like, the Brogdon trade, you look at the roster they had, them picking sixth when they picked Benedict Matherin was their first time picking in the top six since 1988. I mentioned this. So, mm. like, they are in a position now where they could truly bottom out and rebuild, like, top to bottom for the first time in literally more than 30 years, in, like, three-plus decades. And... I'm not saying they had no intention of bringing DeAndre Ayton in, but again, I don't think they actually thought it was going to happen. I think they knew this was how it was going to play out. And I think they are coming to terms with the fact that it is 
time finally to bottom out and and do this because you there are no moves the Pacers can make that will put them even like okay you can talk about how you know owner Herb Simon there and uh, even you know it's, uh, Kevin Pritchard's there now it used to be Larry Bird but like you can talk about how oh they've always managed to do it kind of like retool rebuild whatever you want to call it without bottoming out but those teams also stayed pretty competitive like they're down okay maybe they missed the playoffs here or there but for the most part they're down years they were still like a pretty solid east playoff team the team that they're bringing into this year it's not like there's an upside there where it's like well things break right they can make the second round it's like no the upside is like you're scrapping for 10th maybe and i don't even think they can do that based on the way the east is so i think they are finally resigned to fully bottom out and that's why i think the most not the most interesting because obviously kd is the most interesting ripple effect but like one of the more interesting ripple effects from all of this is the Miles Turner situation. Because as I mentioned on the top of this show, he is on an expiring contract. Yes, there are health questions, but you know, you're not talking about a team needing to take a three or four year gamble on him. I think there are plenty of teams that would be willing to take a one year flyer on Miles Turner and plenty of teams that his skill set can absolutely help and boost their ceiling. The question becomes how risky are they willing to get? Like it's one thing to say, oh, I'll take a one year flyer on him if it's like the Pacers are selling extremely low, which they might have to. It's another thing if their price maybe is too high and then he just wastes away for a year while the, the Pacers are bottoming out. I don't know. But I think if the Pacers, who are finally for the first time in three and a half decades in position to bottom out, want to go all in on that strategy, then I like Miles Turner has to go. They probably have to look at, I, I don't know, the other vets on this team. Was it like TJ McConnell, Buddy Heald maybe? I don't know. Um, but Turner, Turner almost has to go if they want to do this right. I think he just has to go anyway, like regardless of what their plan is. They, they've been trying to trade this dude for like three or more years, right? Like I don't know that he's going to be jumping at the chance to sign another contract with them. So I feel like they have to move him before this season is over. It doesn't have to be before the season starts, but one way or another, I feel like he's going to be gone. I do think... You know, the return is not going to be what it maybe would have been if they had moved him last year or the year before. And maybe they'll come to regret holding on to him for too long. But if the plan is to be picking at the top of the lottery for the next couple of years, then I don't think they're going to be sweating too much about whether they manage to recoup, uh, you know, another first round pick from a contending team that might have been picking in the 20s, you know, like. It is what it is, and they just have to do what they have to do, which is to get whatever they possibly can, I think, for Miles Turner before he becomes a free agent. And and in terms of the Aiton thing and them probably knowing that it was going to get matched, but doing it anyway, you know, kudos to them for actually putting the offer sheet on the table and showing they were serious about, you know, at least trying. I To me, it's just like another indication of how broken restricted free agency is. That like DeAndre Ayton not really having control over the situation and of all these, I mean, there weren't that many teams, I guess, that actually had the cap space, but whatever teams did have cap space and might've been interested in signing DeAndre Ayton, all of them knew that as soon as that happened, that Phoenix was going to match, right? So they don't even bother putting an offer on the table for him. And he just kind of has to sit there blowing in the wind, like not knowing what's going to happen. And I think we can talk about what the fixes for that might be. That's definitely a conversation for another podcast, but I, I think I mean, it's, I, I think it's problematic that this is sort of how it works. 
one of the things I've always thought, okay, we, we can save the, the bigger discussion for another podcast, but one of the things I've always thought is obviously you don't want to do away with restricted free agency off the rookie scale contracts because then you will have, you know, uh, early 2000s Tracy McGrady situations all the time where as soon as a guy's rookie scale contract ends, he's off to wherever he wants to go to. And look, player control is good, but you also, I don't think you want to create an environment where a team who drafts a player, even if they do things right and build well, can lose them within three or four years immediately. Like, I still think you want the incumbent team to have some advantage, at least for that first contract. But what well, the incumbent I, advantage, sorry to interrupt you, but like the ability to offer the rookie money. extension after yes. three years, like that's, I, and I, yeah, the and the ability to offer an extra year, higher annual raises, like those are built-in advantages. Right. I, I still like the incumbent team's ability to match the first contract off the rookie scale. I'm fine with that part of restricted free agency. To your point about guys being left blowing in the wind in situations like this, where it's like, well, Phoenix doesn't want to be the first to act because they don't actually want to pay him that. They're just willing to do it once someone does it and they have to match. And another team doesn't want to put it out because they know they're going to match. So you end up with DeAndre Ayton waiting it out for weeks, even though the end result is always us knowing Phoenix is going to end up paying him the four-year max he could have got somewhere else. But what could be done about it is what if there was like a time limit on it where it's like if a player remains unsigned, hasn't signed an offer sheet or hasn't been re-signed by his team by, I don't know, July 15th, he becomes unrestricted. Like mm-hmm. what, that's the way I've always seen it. It's like, to me, that's the easy fix. And I'm sure there are, I don't know, loopholes and legal things that maybe people more, um, with, with more of an expertise in the CBA or in like work labor agreements could think of maybe, I don't know, that uh, this couldn't work. But to me, that seems like an easy fix. There should be some sort of term on it where it's like if an RFA has not signed an offer sheet or re-signed with his team by insert whatever date, July 15th, August 1st, he becomes unrestricted. I think yeah. that would obviously add more urgency to it. And I think there there would be no more cases like this. I think shrinking that matching window down even further too, because it used to be 72 hours. Now it's 48 hours. I mean, go down to 24 hours, go down to yep. 12 hours. I don't care. Like, I agree. Yeah, but because in the past, and, and it wasn't an issue in this case, obviously, because Indiana wasn't doing anything else with their cap space. But in the past, that was a big disincentive for teams putting those offer sheets on the table because their cap space has to be tied up for that 48 hours or in the past 72 hours. And the incumbent team can just wait it out, right? Like why would they do another team a favor by allowing them to loosen up that cap space again? Like they can force a, a rival team to have their cap space tied up for, for three days, miss out on other free agents potentially, and then just match the offer sheet anyway. And I think that was disincentive and still probably is disincentivizing teams from putting those offer sheets on the table in the first couple of days of free agency. So that happens then teams that have cap space don't have it anymore. And suddenly these RFAs are losing all their leverage. And look, in this case, DeAndre Ayton gets the max that he could possibly get from another team. But I think broadly speaking that I don't think the system is, is working all that well. And I'm sure NBA teams would like disagree with that, right? Like they want to be able to control players free agency as much as they possibly can. So I'm sure they're thrilled with how restricted free agency is working, but I don't know if the players union should necessarily be thrilled about that. No, I agree. Uh, are we also in agreement that the way this has all gone down probably means Kevin Durant is staying put at least until the season starts. That to me is the way that it's pointing right now yeah. because it already seemed like, and I mentioned this before, like I just didn't necessarily think that the 
godfather of all godfather trade offers that they seem to be holding out for was ever going to be put on the table. And now Phoenix being out of the running is just like one less team. I mean, I guess in theory, they could still put together a package of like Bridges, Cam Johnson, and all the picks. Like I, if like whatever they were offering involving Aiton was not getting it done for Brooklyn, I don't see how the Bridges, Cam Johnson, and picks package is moving them. So that's just another team. And there were already sort of not that many of them that were seemingly actually willing to pull the trigger on a deal like this. That team's out of the running, and that's the team that KD had been indicating was kind of his first choice. Where does he go now? You know, like I don't, either Brooklyn significantly lowers their asking price because the, the ability to drum up a bidding war has just dwindled that much further, or they just say, we're not trading you. Like we're not getting the offers that we want. So you can hold out if you really want to, or you can come back, play like the Kevin Durant we know that you are, and this is something we can revisit maybe during the season or next offseason. Like, let's let's bring everybody back and try and win a championship. Like, yeah. we've got you. You are Kevin Durant. We have your good friend Kyrie Irving still under contract. We can try and convince him to come back too. We've got Ben Simmons, like could be a really great, you know, tertiary piece for this team. We signed TJ Warren. I mean, come on, man. We we traded a first round pick for Royce O'Neal. Let's go and try and win a championship. Listen, I I I agree. I think whether it can actually be done, given all of the uncertainty around Kyrie and Ben Simmons and everything else, is a question for another day. But if then whether the Nets believe it can be done, I think is a yes. And I also think, as we've discussed, what, this is now the third episode in a row, we've we've talked about this, like, the incentive for the Nets to rush a trade or to settle for something less than they want is just not there because of the term left on Kevin Durant's contract, because of, like, all the circumstances here, because of the fact that, you know, I've said it so many times, Kevin Durant is a hooper's hooper. Like, if there's one guy that I can't see holding out, especially at this stage of his career with everything he's been through, it's Kevin Durant. Like, he's going to play. I would imagine. And if he's going to play, he's going to play for the most part to the best of his abilities. I know, and you know, plenty of people um, who we interact with on Twitter and who also listen to the show replied to me yesterday when I put that out there, like, because what I put out was like, well, now either the nets are going to um, swallow their pride and trade Kevin Durant for a lot less than they originally planned, or he'll be back. And I would bet on the latter because there is just no incentive to do the former other than doing KD a solid, and there's just no reason for them to do that. And a lot of people, like I said, that interact with me on Twitter, that listen to the show, a lot of their replies seem to be that, like, well, what about the incentive, like, you know, Joe Sy and Sean Marks, they don't want to start a season going through this again. They don't want to have to deal with all the BS again. Like, And I get all that. But I still think, look, if it was like, there was an insane offer out there, just slightly below what they wanted. Sure, maybe they look at it as like, okay, we'll do that. But if it's like they wanted Scotty Barnes, another Raptor star, plus all these picks, and their their option is OG and Trent and all these picks, they're probably not doing it. If the option is like they wanted, uh, what was their insane rumor? They wanted Towns and Anthony Edwards and picks, and instead it's like none of those guys and a boatload of picks. They're not doing that, and so. I think based on the reports of what the offers actually have been, I don't think the Nets are that concerned that if they wait six months, those offers are disappearing. You know, 
if a team had a Scotty Barnes on the table, yeah, that might disappear for six months from now. But guess what? No one's got that kind of offer on the table. Given the offers that have been reported, I think those offers will still be there six to 12 months from now. So I, I just don't see any incentive at all, short of the Nets are so over all of this and so done with all of this drama that they are actually just hell-bent on not having Kevin Durant on their roster come opening day. But I don't believe that's the case. Well, I think the risk for Brooklyn in that scenario is KD comes back and like a month into the season, he gets hurt again, you know, or he's actually showing that the playoff series against Boston, rather than being an outlier, was actually a harbinger of his physical age related decline. You know, like that's the risk is that he comes back and something happens that tanks his trade value. Like, I I think that is sort of what they have to weigh, I suppose. And then, you know, with Kyrie, I think it's even more volatile, right? Because he might not report. Right. He might hold out. He's more the wild card, exactly. Because he he has shown before he will hold out. Right. He could up and retire, you know? He's like, all right, you're not going to trade me like I'm done. Like, that could happen. And it's not a risk-free proposition for the Nets to be like, all right, fine, we'll just bring everybody back. Even, you know, as much as I'm just saying, like, well, that's, you know, if they're not getting the offers and that's what they should do. Uh, there, there is definitely some downside potential there, and I, I, you know, I don't think that they can necessarily just say, "Oh, well, fine, he's got four years left on his contract. We don't have to trade him." They don't have to trade him, but uh, there are certainly a lot of convincing reasons why they should want to be as proactive as they can be and get out ahead of this. But um, I mean, like, if the offers aren't there, the offers aren't there, and I, yeah, OG Trent and picks like. I don't know that I would jump at that package either if I was Brooklyn, even knowing how risky it might be to to go into training camp with all of these volatile, disillusioned personalities. You know, like that's I mean, that's just asking a lot of Steve Nash to try and bring yeah. this group together. No, and and I, you know, I'll reiterate, I'm not saying, and I know you're not either. We're not saying the Raptors should be putting more on the table or any other team. We're not saying Minnesota should actually be considering that insane request the Nets put out there. I'm saying those teams should not do that, but the Nets should also not rush to sell low now because of the eight and like domino falling out. I, right. I just think they should wait it out. And yes, I, I fully understand that does come with risk. God forbid something does happen to KD when the season starts. Yeah. Then the Nets are capital FF, but I think that is a risk you have to take at least to start the season, at least until, you know, the trade season opens up again in December, January, when a guy like, I think you take that risk for a few months as opposed to in Brooklyn's mind, selling extremely low. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, the other interesting thing to me, and this can maybe lead us into a a Donovan Mitchell conversation because the jazz are now listening to, to trade offers for him. They, that's where we're at with Donovan Mitchell. And I'm curious, like, you know, if or when the KD deal gets done, and if or when the Donovan Mitchell deal gets done, I feel like we're going to wind up in a situation where so many of the first round picks for the next like half decade or beyond are going to be concentrated in like, you know, four or five different places. And in a lot of those cases, you know, like OKC, the version of Utah, you know, without Donovan Mitchell. I guess the Pelicans are starting to get serious about winning. So maybe that's one where you could see those picks moving again. But it seems like 
a lot of those picks are going to be in the hands of teams that are like slowly rebuilding and not necessarily looking to swing like a big superstar trade. I wonder what that does to like the, the trade market for the next few years. If or when this happens again and you have a disgruntled star looking to get traded somewhere and suddenly you look around the league and there just aren't that many teams that have this bundle of picks to offer because they're all in the hands of rebuilding teams that are hoarding them and not looking to trade them for a star. You know, like the, the LA teams have, have spent, you know, a lot of their bullets putting their teams together. It just seems like, like who's going to be left that has all this ammo to go and, and trade for a star when like all of the first round picks for the next five years are like in the hands of OKC, Utah, New Orleans. Right. And given that more and more superstar trades are becoming about that boatload of picks as opposed to the players going back, obviously the players going back are important too, but it does seem like more and more the picks themselves are being incentivized in those trades and stars and agents have to know that and, and, you know, realize that does that like maybe cause pause for a disgruntled star a year and a half from now to you who wants to ask out, but sees the way superstar trades have been going, knows it might go to the team with the best draft capital to your point, looks around and says, geez, if I ask for a trade now, like chances are I end up, end up in Utah or Oklahoma city, no disrespect. To you, what I was saying. But you know, I wouldn't be surprised if a star looks at that and thinks, ah, maybe, maybe I'll wait it out. Maybe I won't ask for a trade right now. So yeah, I think that is a really interesting ripple effect of all this. And it'll be something that's really fascinating to monitor over the next couple of years. Yeah. And the other part of that, that is of interest to me is that tension between do you want the bundle of picks or do you want, like, there's gotta be, I think at least some focus on established talent you know what I mean? Like, and we like the Knicks jazz situation where by all accounts, the Knicks don't want to include RJ Barrett in a potential Donovan Mitchell trade. And the jazz might not want RJ Barrett. You know, if it, if he being in the package, it like comes at the expense of more picks. And I don't know how I feel about that because I mean, I understand it from New York's perspective. They should want to hold on to him, especially if they're, you know, if they're, they're getting Donovan Mitchell and they're pairing him with Jalen Brunson in the backcourt, like you need a strong defensive infrastructure around that backcourt. RJ Barrett's a really good defensive wing. He is the kind of player that you want sort of insulating those guys. But from Utah's perspective, like the idea is, okay, they just want the picks because they're building this thing from the ground up. RJ Barrett's extension eligible, or he's going to be an RFA in a year. They're going to have to pay him something significant either this year or next. So why do they want to do that if all they're doing is trying to be really bad for the next two, three years? Well, at a certain point, you got to get the players, right? And like, I'm looking at OKC and I get it. They've got stupid amounts of picks and they have some really intriguing young talent on the team. But where is it going? You know what I mean? Like it, the idea that, well, let's just give ourselves as many bites at the apple as possible. And if we have... 12 projects on the team maybe two of them will pan out and then it will have been worth it but like it also gets crowded right like there's yeah but you know what the difference is to me like and i get that okc's the poster boy for it because of all the picks but like the paul george trade they did get shea gilgis alexander in that deal and 
that is the kind of player that can be a pillar and that they identified. So like, while they did clearly prioritize picks and a lot of the moves they made, they did at least still get one of those potential foundation players mm-hmm. in one of the big blockbuster moves they made. The thing I don't get about Utah and this reported asking price where it's like six first rounders because the Knicks, I think, have eight first rounders over the next so many years. So it'd be like six picks. I don't know how many yeah. of those. Would I think be the, the Knicks have a, have 11 first in the next eight drafts, I think is right. what it is. So I don't know how many. I'm, I think those six would all be actual picks because the Knicks could do that while still keeping picks every other year. They wouldn't have to mix in swaps and things like that. So right. even still, as as crazy as that sounds, six picks. The fact that the Jazz reportedly would trade Donovan Mitchell in a pick-heavy deal that, in terms of players coming back, would be Obi Toppin, Emmanuel Quickly, Quinton Grimes, and Miles McBride. Look, Toppin could be good. I'm a big Quickly fan, but like, what? You'd rather those guys, and I'm not even saying RJ Barrett's going to be a superstar. I think he's an improving player. Like, I think he could be good, could be an all-star, but he's better and has a higher ceiling than all of those guys. And the fact that you would rather a couple extra picks, even like from a team that even if they don't pan out, it'd probably most likely be like middle of the pack type picks over a guy like RJ Barrett. I I don't understand that. And again, the difference to me is that OKC at least already has one or two of those potential foundation players now when they're targeting picks or they have all these picks accumulated. Mm -hmm. Utah's got nothing right now to start from. Nothing. Right. So they need to find one of the... you can get a Barrett, still stockpile picks, and see where you go. You don't have to go all in on picks. Yeah, and it's kind of like, you know, you can go back to last season, and we had, a, I think, a pretty engaging and heated discussion about whether the Rockets should exactly have... exactly what I was just thinking of. ...should have taken, you know, the Ben Simmons trade package rather than the bundle of picks package from Brooklyn. I was kind of ambivalent. Like, I totally recognized why they didn't want Simmons to be the centerpiece, why they thought he was going to be too complicated to build around. But what I didn't understand was them flipping Jared Allen. You know what I mean? Like deciding that they needed an extra, which wasn't even, it was like a Milwaukee pick that they knew wasn't going to be particularly good. They had to have that extra first rounder rather than having like an established, really good young player. And that's where it's like, there, there is... A threshold, you know, and I, at a certain point, like it's fine to prioritize picks if you're in a position where you're taking the the long, long, long view. But there's still something to be said for just like acquiring young talent, even if it's like a little bit rough around the edges, and it's isn't the kind of player we would have drafted. Or if we were if we had our druthers and we were picking a, a type or a mold of young player that we want to add in this trade package, doesn't look like Jared Allen. So we'd rather just flip him for a pick rather than just saying, well, no, this is a good young player. You know, he was 22 at the time. Like we, we should see what we have. So if I was Utah, I think I would prioritize getting somebody like RJ Barrett rather than tacking two picks onto the already pick heavy package that they're probably going to be getting back. Yeah. And look to the Rockets credit and they, I'm sure they did you know, foresee not all of this because no one could have foreseen all of this, but I'm sure they could have foreseen some of this, right? You're thinking Kyrie's flaky, the Nets, we don't know, KDJ, like, you know, we get these unprotected picks or mostly unprotected picks from Brooklyn down the line. Like these could be extremely valuable. I get all that and I get why they prioritize that. But again, I said it then, I'll say it again now. I still thought it was batshit crazy 
that they opted for a deal where within like less than a full calendar year of trading James Harden at that point in his trade value, they didn't have a player on the roster to show for that. I thought that was batshit crazy then. I still think that. And as even though those picks are now looking amazing, as you were saying with Jared Allen, it's like, guess what? Had they found like kept Jared Allen in that deal, maybe they get a couple less picks. You're still end up with a boatload of picks, including some unprotected Brooklyn ones down the line. Like, it's not like, oh, now they wouldn't have had any of those picks. Like, they could have had the best of both worlds. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the way to go at this if you're one of these teams. And it's like, hey, maybe you get a player like Jared Allen, or in this case, the Jazz, you get a player like RJ Barrett, and he doesn't quite fit what you want to do, or maybe he's not even there when you eventually get to where you want to get to. But if you you know, mold him the right way if things go well between you and him. Guess what? Maybe he then becomes a trade chip for you down the line. Like, there's other ways to look at it other than just like, well, he doesn't really fit what we want to do, especially if you're not planning on contending for years anyway. It doesn't really matter whether he fits what you want to do, like, in the big picture. Can he be a good young player that is potentially could be a foundational player for you? And if not, could be a trade chip down the line. And if the answer is yes, then that to me is more valuable than tacking on one or two more picks in a trade where you're already getting like four plus picks. I mean, so looking at it that way, I guess, if the Jazz are sort of just dead set on getting as many picks as possible, then the Knicks make for a, a natural trading partner, right? Because they have stockpiles, you know, a decent number of first rounders. And, and I think that would be a great move for the Knicks. Like in a lot of the conversations that I have seen or heard about this, I just feel like... And I get that the last postseason has left a sour taste in a lot of people's mouths, mine included. Like I was, I think, unsparing in my criticism of Donovan Mitchell in the postseason and his defensive effort, which was embarrassing, straight the up. Jazz, the Jazz were word for word dead to you while I think they were only down 2-1 in the series. <laughs> yes, because I, I truly thought that their effort level, especially Donovan Mitchell's effort level on defense, was a joke. Uh, agreed, yeah. I believe that he can be better than that i have seen him play better than that defensively and i just think that he's being underrated a little bit in some of these conversations because we're talking about a guy who was like the primary driving force like the lead guard for the number one offense in all of basketball last season the year before that they were number four and like you know you look at the rest of that roster and there's good offensive players but like I don't think you look at those teams and it it screams best offense in basketball. And he's 25 years old, right? Like you're you're getting a really good young player who's going to be really good for a very long time. And I think that uh, I, I, anyone who's like questioning whether the Knicks like should should be willing to do something like that, I just don't like what what else are they holding out for? Like how often do you get a chance to trade for a 25-year-old three-time All-Star who has been the number one on the number one offense in basketball. Like, that's those opportunities just don't come around very often. No, and when they do for the Knicks, they're in free agency and they never go the way they think it will. Like, this is the kind of player, okay, maybe not, obviously not at the absolute top, top tier of superstar, but a perennial All-Star high-level star player in his mid-20s, still maybe not even in his prime, who wants to be in New York, by all reports and accounts, 
Like, this is exactly the type of star the Knicks and Knicks fans have been targeting and hoping for and thinking they're going to get for, like, decades now and not getting. Like, when's the last time? And I know you can talk Carmelo, and even if neither one of us was necessarily, like, the highest star in Carmelo, he obviously, at his apex, he was a great player. But even Carmelo, when he got to the Knicks, I think was already over 30, if not was close to turning 30. Like, when's the last time the Knicks have had a player this good at this stage of his career? uh the 90s i legitimately don't know the right. answer to that exactly. <laughs> so, I, i'm with you like they should absolutely be ready to go almost all in for this like mm-hmm. it, i and i would not say anything negative about it now the only thing i will say and i'm not saying this this should make them not want to do the deal because you continue you just keep building and getting better and see where it takes you and you make moves after that you know as it comes but i will ask the question what do you think the ceiling would be for a Knicks team that looks like the lineup sounds really good. Donovan Mitchell, Jalen Brunson, RJ Barrett, Julius Randall, not having to be the lead guy offensively anymore. And Mitchell Robinson. What do you think the ceiling for that team is? I don't think either one of us thinks it's an, an actual title contender, or maybe you do. I don't know. But what do you think the ceiling is for that team? Why not? Why, why, why couldn't it be a title contender? I think the, the defense is going to be worse than, even worse than a lot of people think man like mm-hmm. Rachel Robinson can only cover up so much Tom Thibodeau you know for as much as we talk about the defensive mind like he's coached bad defensive teams including in New York or you know disappointing defensive teams if you, if you want to talk about last year Barrett's an improving defender but if you've got Mitchell and Brunson at the point of attack even a Mitchell who you know does give more of a shit I, that's still a pretty weak defensive backcourt it's pretty hard to make up for both those guys I think Brunson's- and Randall. Although, I mean, if Randall and Mitchell give a shit, that's true. Maybe they're just like passable defensively. Yeah, Randall like two years ago had a good defensive season. I know like, was an above mm-hmm. average defender. So it's definitely tough to say with these guys who have the physical tools to do it, who have shown that they can do it, and then just kind of suddenly have really down defensive years. And I know this past year wasn't the only down defensive year of Randall's career. Or Mitchell's. (laughs) Right. If anything, like last season was the big outlier for Randall being good defensively. But I think that we have seen in the past that incentive can do wonderful things for players at the defensive end of the floor. Like so much of defense is effort and like willingness to get in a stance, to grind, to communicate and make those rotations like it is like you just have to be willing to do the dirty work and that can make such an immense difference and I don't look at Mitchell and see somebody who's going to be limited physically in terms of the kind of defender he can be like he's small in stature but he has this really long wingspan he's super athletic like what is stopping him from being at least an average or slightly above average point of attack defender And Brunson, I think, has never had that issue. Like, he works really hard defensively in spite of the fact that he is even smaller than Donovan Mitchell, you know? Like, he doesn't have the physical tools to maybe be an exceptional defender, but he works his ass off at that end of the floor. I think you could be good enough to where, offensively, that's a dynamite backcourt, great fit. Either of them can play on or off the ball. You can stagger them and have one of them on the floor at all times. You've got you know, complimentary ball handling and RJ Barrett, that that is very much a work in progress, but 
you know, talk about putting him in a low stress environment where he's not going to have to do too much with the ball in his hands, where he can be an off ball slasher and more of a play finisher. And then the same thing with Randall, right? Like I, I like the fact that he can do stuff with the ball in his hands, but I would like it a lot more if he didn't have to, you know, like, I think it was just a little bit too much on his plate from a playmaking perspective the last couple of years. So I think maybe you still run into some spacing issues, but I think that could be a really good offensive team that would be good enough defensively. You know, I'm not saying that they would win a championship, but like, could they be a team that wins 50 plus games three or four years in a row? I think so. And like, what are you at the end of the day? What are you trying to do? If, if yep. you're not trying to do that, if you're not trying to build a team that can be really good for a sustained period of time. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. I, I would still do it. I, I don't think they could win a title as presently constructed, but I would still do it because it makes them potentially really good. And yeah. that's a good step to take towards becoming a title contender. Because like I said, you put as good a team together as you can, and then you kind of play your cards from there. Maybe something comes up where then you can flip Barrett or something. Who knows? And all of exactly. a sudden, now you can make the move right. that with Mitchell and someone like becomes a title contender. So I, I do that. No questions asked. Yeah. And I think if, can this move get us to a place where we're going to win a championship? If that's your only barometer, you know, or, the, or that's where the benchmark is for whether or not you should make the deal. I just think that is, I, I've come out, like I supported the the Wolves going out and, and getting Gobert, even though I do think, you know, they, they paid out the nose to get him. And similarly with the Hawks getting DeJounte Murray, like you can, I can look at those and be like, okay, maybe it was a bit of an overpay. Maybe those teams aren't there yet, but you never just get there. I mean, maybe not never, but like you very rarely get there with just like one move, you know, it's incremental. And so you get yourself closer and then you sort of figure out the rest along the way. But, you know, look, a 25 year old superstar is available. I think you do pretty much whatever you can to go and get that guy, despite the, despite the obvious flaws that he has demonstrated over the last couple of years, you know, not just in terms of the defense, but like, you know, the playmaking has been a little bit stunted. He can definitely be a bit of a black hole. I I mean, I say that and then I'm like, well, I, I you could do worse than a black hole who like shoots 54% from yes. point range and is one of like the best drivers in the league, like finishes incredibly well around the rim shoots, you know, I know he's not an exceptional three-point shooter, but like league average on basically 10 three-point attempts per game, many of which are self-created. I mean, he's a phenomenal offensive, like phenomenal offensive player. He is a star, like an upper tier all-star. I'd make the move if I was the Knicks. Uh, is there another team that you would want to see make that move or can imagine making that kind of move? Like, you so know, a team that it would be worthwhile you know, for a swing like that, because, uh, you know, I mean, worthwhile, like close to contention, making it like, I don't know, not just because we're sitting here in Toronto, but we talk about the Raptors and being in the like being this team that is uniquely equipped right now to make a like a, a present minded move without necessarily having to mortgage all of their future. Like, yeah, if the Raptors turn to like find a way to land Donovan Mitchell while keeping Pascal Siakam and Scotty Barnes and even Fred Van Vliet, like uh, that team can win a championship. So that's a team I I would be very curious to see get in the mix. On the opposite end, a team that I like isn't close to contention. But again, if we're just looking at teams like making good on some of their draft capital or getting better, or taking that next step, 
man, like, what if, like, OKC actually decided to trade in some of this draft capital? And by the way, they could do this and probably still have a ton of draft capital left mm-hmm. and put together a Donovan Mitchell SGA backcourt with some of the young bigs and other guys they got coming. Like, that, you don't think that's a team that can make some noise all of a sudden in the West? So I think there are teams on, like, both ends of the ledger here that could and should get in the mix for Donovan Mitchell because as much as I rag on his defense, I do think he's that special offensively. Yeah, and that's what, you know, him being 25 years old, it opens up so many possibilities because similar to the DeJounte thing where, you know, I was talking about the Hawks, they don't need to be a championship contender right away for this to have been a move that works out for them long-term. He's young. Like, they can keep him around for a long time. And... The, you know, for, for Donovan Mitchell, it's, it's kind of the same thing. Like you can get him with, you know, while still taking a long view. I would understand the Thunder not wanting to do that because ultimately he's yeah. probably going to walk when his contract yeah. is up. And I don't know if they're going to be good enough in the next, I, I think he has what, three years left on his Two, deal? But like, the third one's a player option. So, oh no, sorry. Yeah. Three years. He's got, the fourth one's a player option. So right. yeah, he's got, he's got three years left. I can see them being like, we're, we're not going to be good enough in the next three years and then we're going to lose him. So it's not worth right. it. Um, I think the the Raptors is the is the team. Uh, Zach Lowe, I think the one that he threw out on his podcast today was OG Thad and three firsts. I would do that in a heartbeat if I was yeah. Toronto, and I don't know if that's actually enough to get it done for Utah, especially if like a super sub. Yes, which is yeah. what like I yeah. desperately want to happen for the Raptors' sake, is for Gary Trent to be a sixth man because I just think he's. <laughs> I think he's overextended as a starter, but could be a great, a great gunner off of the bench. So I think I I really like OG, but I would do that in a second because I think Donovan Mitchell addresses so much of what the Raptors need. And OG is a little bit more redundant there. Yep. Like, I don't even, I don't even blink making that move. They, they, so badly need a guard with some downhill juice. They just need more self-creation, more pull-up shooting, more ball handling, period. And I think they could do that. Obviously, their defense takes a hit in that scenario because OG is a a magnificent shape-shifting defender. But I still think they have enough defensively that they're going to be okay. Yeah. Where, I mean, I'm thinking about a starting lineup of Fred... Mitchell, Scotty Barnes, Pascal Siakam, and, you know, start whoever you want at the five, Precious Achua. Yeah. That to me looks like, you know, a, a potential championship contending starting five. And With the, Gary the bench. Trent, Otto Porter, Chris Boucher. I was like, that's pretty damn good. So, um, yeah, I, I make that trade in a heartbeat. Hell, throw in a few OVO tickets too if you're the Raptors <laughs> while you're at it. Like, it's. Yeah. So. The Knicks, because they because it makes sense, and because they are already reported to be in talks with the Jazz, like that seems to be the most like maybe the most likely destination right now. But I would put the Raptors right at the top of the heap in terms of teams that I think it makes the most sense. Agreed. I'm sure there are some other teams that I'm forgetting about now, but like Miami is the one that I'm sure would love to trade for Donovan Mitchell, but. As has been the case with like, yeah, we know Miami wants to get in these conversations, wants to go and get stars and is, you know, an attractive destination for stars. But if we're talking about the trade market, I just don't think they have the pieces. Like, I'm sorry, like Tyler Hero is not 
the centerpiece of a superstar trade. He's not like he's he's the secondary piece. He could be like the secondary piece of a superstar trade, but not the I primary. guess. But like, who's the who's you know who's that, the primary? That's what I'm saying. He's not he's not the primary guy, and they don't have a primary guy. Yeah, like he had a great season, one six man of the year. They every single year they get absolutely annihilated with him on the floor in the playoffs every year. Yeah. So, I I just I, I don't think they have the ammo. Um, would you, you know? Do you, uh, oh, sorry. Sorry. So you think KD is probably starting the season in Brooklyn? Do you think Donovan Mitchell starting the season in Utah, or you think they ultimately get a deal done? No, I I would bet on them getting a deal done. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. You know who uh, who I don't think anyone's giving up three to six picks for on his new contract? Bradley Beal and or Damian Lillard. <laughs> yes, who you wrote about today. More so Bradley Beal, by the way. Even though I know Dame's on a, a, you know, a new deal that will pay him 60 plus million dollars five years. Well, like, it's like Bradley Beal is less tradable now. Literally, well, yeah, no he literally. Like, well, okay, sorry. Even if you took the no trade clause out of it, just take both contracts. I'd still say Bradley Beal is less tradable. Yeah, I was gonna say like even if a team was willing to put three to six first round picks on the table for Bradley Beal, with his fifty million dollar a year contract that has a fifteen percent trade kicker, even if a team was willing to do that, uh, Bradley Beal could just veto that trade because yeah. he has. Now the 10th no-trade clause in NBA history, the only active no-trade clause in the NBA. The Wizards, uh, they they cannot quit Bradley Beal. They, they LeBron have, James. Yeah. Kevin Garnett. Mm-hmm. Dirk Nowitzki. Yeah. Kobe Bryant. Mm. Tim Duncan. Mm-hmm. David Robinson. Yes. John Stockton. Carmelo Anthony, which I will give you in and of itself, doesn't belong on this list, but still, Carmelo Anthony. Bradley Beal. Two of these things are not like the yeah. others. Oh, one, I'd say Beal even more so. Bradley Beal, three-time All-Star, one-time All-NBA selection. As the best player on his team, the best his team has ever been is 38 wins. Hmm. Tough. Yeah. And I will say, by the way, now this doesn't excuse them giving him a no-trade clause, but for anyone thinking like it's crazy, some other guys haven't had no-trade clauses, the way it works in the NBA, you do need... You need to have at least eight years of NBA service time, and you need to have played at least four years for your incumbent team while signing a new contract. So, for example, if a player strictly signs an extension, that is not eligible to have a no-trade clause in it. If he reaches free agency, as Bradley Beal technically did in terms of his contract expiring, and a player is going to sign a new contract with the team he's played with at least four years while also having eight years of service time, he becomes no trade clause eligible. doesn't mean they have to give it to him. But so that does clear up, uh, hopefully for some people, why some guys who you'd assume have no trade clauses don't have them because they literally don't meet the very strict eligibility criteria the, the NBA has for it. Having said all that, just because a guy qualifies doesn't mean you have to give it to him. But as we discussed last week, uh, as I've actually got a video coming out next week on YouTube saying, as you, uh, you know, you've written about uh, Beal and Dane, like they're stuck together now. They are stuck together. 
I'm not saying it's impossible. He'll never get traded. But for the time being, they are stuck together. I'm, I was going to say no one wins. Bradley Beal wins because he added a quarter billion dollars to his net worth. But like for other reasons, no one really wins here. Wizards fans, as usual, lose. I mean, I think Beal and Dame, like they both win because this does seem to be what they want. Yes, right? then they win financially, of course. But it's not just financial. And that's this is sort of what I was getting at in that piece because I was talking about, I mean, it was really just about the pros and cons of this arrangement for both yeah. of these guys who, if you listen to what they have said mm-hmm. with their actions and their words, what they want is to be the focal point of their respective franchises, right? They want to be the guys who are built around, the culture setters, the guys who are, you know, helping to build this thing kind of from the ground up. And, you know, both of them came out and said in their press conferences after signing, you know, Dame extended his contract two years, $122 million, and Beal getting the the five-year $251 million max. Both of them came out and said, it would mean more to me to win a championship here than going and doing it somewhere else, than going and joining a team already in progress. And I, I think that's cool. Like players can and do have completely different priorities from one another. And I don't think this is like an indication that Bradley Beal and Damian Lillard don't care about winning. I think it's fair to say winning a championship at any cost is not their number one priority necessarily. Like they want to be able, they want to be able to do it on their own terms. They value stability. You know, they value their organizational status, their connection with the fans in, in the markets that they've played their entire careers. It's fine to value those things and to not necessarily say like, yeah, I will do whatever it takes to win a championship, wherever I have to win it, whatever I have to do, whoever I have to force to get traded or you know whichever team i have to force a trade to any of those things i have to do like it's not worth it to me to do all that just to win a championship and and dame was like i can live with not winning as long as i have a a shot at it which that's the thing like i don't think he does um (laughs) but and i no sorry well look i the, the the downside in spite of all the obvious upsides of of signing these exorbitant contracts like the financial security and you know the things that i just mentioned in terms of them getting what they want with the franchises that they have been on for their entire careers everything that comes along with that the downside is if or when they arrive at a point where they're like okay i'm seeing the sun setting i don't have a lot of time left i really do want to contend for a championship the team i'm on now is not going anywhere it's not it's not getting to that point that's when it's like, okay, well, what do I do though? Because I'm a 36 year old getting paid close to $60 million a year. It's just going to be hard. Like that's, that's why you say stuck together, right? Because yeah, like actually getting out of that arrangement is going to be really difficult for both parties. And my fear, you know, for Lillard's sake or for Beal's sake would be they come to that epiphany, you know, at some point and they're like, no, I need to actually move on and go somewhere else where I have a legitimate chance to win. And it's kind of too late. Yeah. You know, like the they've put themselves in a situation where they can't actually get themselves to where they want or need to go. 
Yeah. At that point, I would hope the hundreds of millions of dollars help ease their pain. But I'm with you. Like, it, <laughs> I, I've said this all along. As much as, you know, I will clown guys in the moment for, for, for various reasons in the playoffs or whatever, not winning, not being able. Like, I've said all along that just like any other segment of society, a workforce, you could say, like, you take 450 different people in the league, there, there's 450 different human beings there with different personalities, with different values and priorities. And I'm cool with that, like, as everyone should be. If Bradley Beal's goal was to want to maximize his earnings potential in a profession where it's extremely lucrative, but also a very limited window, all the power to him. He should be commended for the fact that despite, as I mentioned, you know, three-time All-Star, one-time All-NBA, never being the best player in a 40-win team, he's managed to get to a point where by the end of this contract, his career earnings will be 430 goddamn million dollars. Like, he should be commended for that. Bravo, get your money. Like, I'm not judging that. And even more on a human level, which a lot of people can relate to, if you have the ability to make as much money as you can while also not having to uproot your family and having control over that and like, that's what you want and that's like where you're comfortable, all the power to you again no judgment whatever and even if you do regret it three years down the line again i'm sure like for real if you have 430 million dollars you've earned or like you'll be fine you'll get over it you can literally wipe your tears with hundred dollar bills but the one thing i'll say in beale's case is if you look at some of his quotes like all i'm at, like just be honest man like just come out and say look i i wanted like I did prioritize like maximum security for myself and future generations of my family. And I wanted to stay put my family's comfortable here and that's it. Don't say, as he literally said this month, I still believe I can win. Like I, I signed, there was a quote where he said like he, he committed because he still believes he can win a championship in Washington. Okay, now, I, but I, cash, well, cash. I get what well, you're going to say. What else is he going to say? What else is he going to say? He can, he can dance around that question and just talk about the security. Like, come on, man. Come on. You don't have to tell me. You don't have to tell. You don't have to with a straight face say that you still think you can win a championship with the Wizards. There's no, if he truly believes that, there, it's one thing to be confident and think, you know, I'm the best so I can carry this team there. Like, it's another thing to be completely blind and lack any self-awareness. And so Bradley Beal's either lying through his teeth that he believes that, or the alternative is this guy's completely blind and out to lunch. And so that's my only thing. Just... Yeah, I'm not saying he should have come out and been like, oh, no chance. Come on, this 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 gong show, this tire fire of a franchise, I can't win here. But you don't have to come and say like, oh, no, like, you know, I still want to win. And like, this is where I like I think I can win here. And like, no, you can't. And you don't think that. I'm sorry. You did it for the money and security and comfort. And that's all good. That's fine. Don't tell me you think you can win a championship with the Wizards because you know you can't. All right, two things. One, even if he doesn't believe what he's saying, I don't think... Wizards fans would be happy. Wizards him. fans aren't happy now. They just their team just gave Bradley Beal a quarter billion dollars. Okay, fair enough. But you think you think they'd be cool with it if he went up there and was just like, I signed this contract because I wanted to make as much money as possible. And like we we might not have a chance to win a championship, but I'm rich. So thanks, Wizards. I don't think he has to word it like that. But I also think he he could have said I prioritized security and comfort for my family and I'm going to I'm going to like try my damnedest to bring the wizards as far as I can. Yeah, I mean so the, but the other the other part of that is and I feel like we have had this conversation before you have to be a little bit or maybe a lot delusional as an NBA player. Like you have to be 
in some ways delusional to make it to the NBA in the first place. Like to believe that that is an attainable dream. You have to step on that court every day thinking that you are the best player in the world, thinking that you can do anything. So even if it's like something like, you know, it's like an affirmation that he has to tell himself every morning to like convince himself like, no, I can win a championship in Washington. I can win here. I can win here. Like whatever he has to do to convince himself that that's fine. I don't, I had no issue with him coming out and saying that. I, I would have been more disappointed if he had come out and been like, it was about the money. <laughs> you know, like I would value the honesty, but also be like, come on, man, you don't have to say that. Look, I think one, uh, the NBA finally creates that mid season tournament. I think years from now, the championship trophy of that tournament will be called the Bradley Beal award. It'll be the Bradley Beal invitational for regular season championships and the MVP of that tournament game, whatever, it'll be the Damian Lillard award. There you go. Um, yeah, I mean, do you, there, there's not much else to say on the Dame side of things that we haven't already said about Beal, apart from the fact that like Dame's way better than Beal. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like yes. you can sort of, uh, I think if you're the Blazers, it's a little bit easier to talk yourself into building a contending team around him because they have, I believe Dame believes I believe that Dame believes he can win a title in Portland. I don't believe he can, but I believe he believes he can. I don't even believe Bradley Beal believes he can. Right. Uh, and we we have seen the Blazers build, you know, if not championship contenders around Dame, then at least 50-plus win teams that are at, like yes. winning playoff rounds. Like we have seen them do that, where we have not seen the Wizards really even come close to that with Bradley Beal as their best player. So uh, th- there is a difference, and I think... Even looking at just like the supporting cast, like I think that the you like take Beal and Lillard away from their teams, and I think the Blazers are still better than the Wizards. So from that perspective, it's like kind of unfair to lump them together, but it, it also makes sense to lump them together because in both cases, their teams are kind of middle of the road and are choosing to extend this window of being anywhere from like mediocre to pretty good to maybe even quite good at some point if you know like if the internal development goes where it could potentially go then the teams could be good you know they like the Blazers could back, get back to a point where they're winning 50 games in a season but I do yep. like it was and I pointed this out in the article because there was that I think it was Mark Stein who reported last year maybe a couple of years ago that Beal has been telling people you know in and around the league or in his inner circle that he wants to be the Dirk Nowitzki of Washington and it's like <laughs> Maybe have one 50-win season before oh. you start comparing yourself to a guy who did it 11 years in a row before so winning a championship. About delusional? What are you saying about delusional? That Look, it's necessary. Man, yes, yes. Um, and in terms of the Dame, the comparison and the Blazers thing, the Blazers have built teams with Dame on them who have done things that the Wizards haven't done since before Bradley Beal was born. Mm-hmm. Look, different players value different things. Yep. Different teams value different things. And so I think, I guess the last point I want to make about this is there's a reason that I don't ever criticize players for leaving their team in free agency, for angling, for trades, for doing whatever is in their power, exercising their agency, however they see fit, to improve or just otherwise change their situation. To be happy. And the reason for that is teams operate in that same way. Like if they loyalty has never been a two way street. So all this talk of like 
you know, hand wringing about players not being loyal to their franchises who, as soon as it becomes convenient for them, will trade those players even against their will. I just don't think it's fair. It's a stupid double standard. And I think, you know, looking at this, like a lot of the same people who will rip a player for being disloyal to his team, those same people will rip a team like the Wizards for bending over backwards or overpaying Bradley Beal. And I I really see a problem with that where like, for me, I'm looking at it and saying, I actually wish no trade clauses were more commonplace. I think it would be a lot better if we weren't so surprised that, you know, Bradley Beal becomes the only player in the league to have one. The players should have more of that sense of security. And if the league wants to curtail player movement in some capacity, which it seems like they want to do, then whatever compromise they decide they need to make, you know, in the next round of CBA negotiations, I feel like part of the give and take should be, we're going to actually make it easier for players to get no trade clauses in their contract. Like forget the eight years of service time thing or the four years with one team thing. We're going to make these more common and it has to be a two-way street. And so, you know, as much as I don't think this is a great long-term move for the Wizards, and I have said that before, I still think it's kind of nice in a way to actually see that loyalty and that commitment go both ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I don't disagree with that at all. So yeah, that's that's where I'm at with the Beal and Lillard things. Uh, I uh, feel like I'm, I'm kind of tapped out. I mean, we've gone surprisingly long here considering how little (laughs) how little actual news there has been but hey there's i guess there's always something to talk about in this crazy league that we cover yeah and there's nothing surprising about us going (laughs) over what we planned for a time so i thought you were actually being sarcastic when you said we went surprisingly long yeah you're right we went unsurprisingly long if you you think this is surprising you're as delusional as bradley beal I mean, look, in this business, you've got to be. I come into every episode thinking we're going to do a tight 45 every single time. That's true. So call me the Bradley Beal of podcasting. I suppose I will await my $250 million check. Uh, You got a fan shout out for us this week, Cash? uh, Shout out this week goes, uh, I like this one. It's it's a good one. Shout out goes to Ranger, Michael Ranger, who is the bartender bar manager at Hong Shing in Toronto. First of all, Hong Shing never misses. Always takes care of me when I'm in there. And Michael Ranger, uh, awesome bartender, cool guy all around. uh, Wanted to give him a fan shout out this week because we were talking about Pound the Rock the last time I was there. Thank you to all our listeners, as always, for sticking with us. Even when we're rambling on for an hour and 15 minutes about who knows what, uh, we appreciate your patronage. And as uh, as Cash always likes to say, if uh, you are a fan of the show and want to hit us up, want to shout out on the pod, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Joey underscore W. Cash is at Joseph Cacharo. Uh, you can email us me at joe.wolfon at the score.com cash at joseph.casharo at the score.com or hit up cash on Instagram at joe underscore 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 cash. Tell us how long you've been a fan of the show, where you're listening from, what you like about the show, what you don't like about the show. And we will get you a shout out on a future episode. But for now, I think we should probably put a bow on this monstrosity. So thank you all again for listening. We will talk to you at some point next week, hopefully with some more, spicy transactional news from around the league. But if not, we will surely find something else to ramble about. For now, we're signing off. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. Pound the Rock. Pound the Rock.